Wouldn't you know it, I had this great plan of, of meandering tonight a little bit. Uh, can you hear me okay? Okay. I'm, the words that are coming to my mouth right now are, um, are that my father-in-law is um, in the process of dying. And, I'm, and as I say this to you, I'm, at the same time, I'm uh, influenced by a rerun that I just saw of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Larry David finds out that his mother has died and no one told him about it. But then he realized that if he told people then his, that his mother had died, they would be, one, be nice to him. They wouldn't have, he wouldn't have to talk to them too much. And so I, I, I hope you don't think I'm using this as a device to, so that you <laughs> But I cried so hard from laughter that... Uh, now every time I tell someone something terrible that's happened, I'm going to think of Larry David. <laughs> Sorry about that. I appreciated, just going back to this evening, I appreciated uh, seeing everyone, although I wasn't as participatory tonight, I appreciated seeing everyone gathering around, hanging out, eating, drinking, speaking, and I hope it... Um, I hope it was uh, as heartwarming for you as it was for me to see all of you. And then it was just a, a great joy to sit with you tonight. Uh, and I remembered just less than a month ago that we did the first uh, social gathering. And we sat outside, and some of you may not have been there, but sitting outside, I remember it inspired me to to pretend that we were in the deer park in Sarnath 2,500 years ago and, and thinking uh, that we were... And I w- tried to pretend being the, the Buddha giving his first discourse. It's kind of presumptuous, but, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and uh, shared the, the teachings on the, the Four Noble Truths. And I think every week it's... Uh, I think every talk is the Four Noble Truths in, in drag, you know, in some, some version of it. But that reminder that there is stress for all of us just uh, in this life. If you're born, uh, it is the, being born is the leading cause of, of stress. And it's then it's also the leading cause of sickness and old age, uh, dying and death. And that no one gets away with it and we, to treat this as anything other than what is in the natural course of things uh, is, to, uh, is to suffer, is to suffer mentally being in resistance to what is. And, and our practice teaches us, and that's the second noble truth, to resist how things are, to, to be caught in wanting things to be different than the way they are, brings suffering. And the teachings also offer that there is a potential to live in harmony with things. And that this is the cessation, this is the end of suffering that we can experience moment to moment. Uh, 
uh, and there's a path, and that path is is the center of that path is kind attention, is attention to our lives, uh, to our what we do, how we act in our lives, how we speak in our lives, uh, whether our minds are are filled with uh, with wholesome intentions or unwholesome intentions, whether we cause harm or we or we bring whether we bring goodwill to our lives it's there's a path that and each of us is a creative field of possibility that can be uh, trained that can be inclined toward a sense of well-being that we're not just stuck with whatever uh, condition that we're in that we not only do we have to deal with stress but we can deal with stress with more or less um, reactivity more or less suffering so there is this possibility of the end of suffering. So that was a few weeks ago. And I, as I was sitting tonight, I was thinking about dukkha, which is this word for stress or suffering or that which is different, difficult to bear. And, and naturally, I was thinking about my father-in-law. And I also, I think, I think it's been in probably at a rate of about three to five a day, I've been hearing about people doing the dying or in great sense of distress or illness. And in fact, just before I began to speak this evening, I heard that one of our um, Sangha members was in, a, in an accident today and broke his sternum. Just so you know, and I think all of you who were who here for that social gathering know that there was a fellow who stood up giving an impassioned plea to, uh, to uh, show up at a vigil for the person who was on death row. That person is Richard Kamler who's just been an accident. So let's all put him in our, in our hearts. This is, it's painful to be alive. And, but it's, it is our opening to this that allows us to feel a connection. So let it, let it touch you for a moment. So getting back to my, my father-in-law after, I hope it, he had long enough to think about Richard but thinking about my father-in-law, very um, beautiful, beautiful man. He's uh, a really brilliant uh, orthopedic surgeon who started foot and ankle clinics all over the country to be able to bring bringing feet and ankle within the realm of uh, orthopedics and and really highlighted the potential to do great work on these little teeny bones of the feet and the ankles. And he's, as all beings do, he's quite diminished. He's got uh, uh, metastatic uh, pancreatic cancer. He's got a blood clot, a blood clot, and who knows which one's going to take him out uh, once and for all. But he's definitely dying. He's quite at peace with it. He's not at peace with the discomfort that he feels in the process. But he's really at peace. He's ready to, ready to to go. And my wife was visiting him uh, the last week and during this last week I have speaking of dukkha and sukha sukha is the opposite of dukkha you know we have sukha dukkha we have the comfort happiness and then we have the dukkha well I I was Mr. Mom and Mr. Dad this last week and uh, it was quite a quite a little joyous 
uh, and not so joyous ride with my with my daughter Molly. Just a, a little vignette. On Friday evening, I promised her because it was the weekend. She's in Waldorf education, or Waldorf inspired education, not absolute Waldorf, but she's Waldorf inspired education, and they encourage parents to refrain from showing their kids the uh, modern media, movies, TV, etc. But occasionally, because we're not absolutists, we do the movie thing and sometimes the cartoon thing and the TV thing. And I promised her that if um, that she could, uh, that we would watch a family movie together. And but when we got home from, when we got home from uh, whatever we were doing, she wanted to have her alone time. <laughs> and she proceeded to have one hour alone time, and by the time she was done with her alone time, there wasn't time for a family movie. And when I told her there wasn't time for a family movie, she had a little meltdown. And she took her little glass of water that was sitting on the table where we were sharing a little fruit, and she dumped it on the table. <laughs> and proceeded to, in every which way possible, tell me how much she hated me. <laughs> Don't feel sorry for me. <laughs> She's seven. Thank you for asking. She's seven. <laughs> Twenty-seven. <laughs> She's seven. And this is where the uh, this is where the Dharma comes in. This is where dukkha comes in. So there was this instantaneous. <clears throat> I'm, you know, I. She's pouring pouring water, and then I. I told her that um, I had also told her that she could have uh, dessert. And I said, well, now you're not going to have dessert. <laughs> and at which point she, she um, escalated her, her, her reaction. And if I look at it from a conventional viewpoint, this is just, you know, outrageous behavior. This seven-year-old, you know, running, trying to run the show and tell me what to do and da-da-da-da-da. And, and I got grumpy and, and this was dukkha. But the good news is that, is that because I'd, I, I think it's, I don't know always how to make attributions, but because I practice uh, mindful attention because it's important to me to to be kind and to be and to connect with my daughter I just took her in I felt that grumpiness inside I felt that wanting to just and but then I took a look at her and I realized this is a seven-year-old thank you for asking again seven-year-old little girl who's had an enormously long day whose mom is gone Who's, uh, who's really beside herself with fatigue and doesn't even know it. And all of a sudden, by having for a moment just rubbed up against my own frustration, just let myself feel it, and then be available enough to, 
to look at her, my heart just melted. And, and we somehow made a compromise and, uh, and all was well. But this was, this was a lot of dukkha. But there was something about turning toward the situation, not just staying in my reaction, turning toward my, my own frustration, turning toward her, her predicament that just allowed a little softening to occur. And the, what happened was a little more compassion than, uh, than I would normally, would normally do. And it reminded me, I've been thinking about this a lot over the weekend, is that when I finally just looked at her as the seven-year-old little girl who is, is tired, for a moment, and I think maybe the, the, the magic in, in, this, in that moment of, of release and compassion was for a moment I stepped out of the identity of parent whose I stepped out of the identity of this power dynamic between parent and, and child. And by stepping out of that identity, I could actually see her. While I was stuck in my identity as a parent, I was outraged that she would pour water on the table and, and tell me how much she hated me. But when I could step out of that identity, and then I started to see through the whole weekend, and is that, that it is this view of self this self-view, wherever it is that I have an identity. And it was interesting, just uh, this morning, speaking to my, uh, my wife before she came back from, from visiting with her dad, who she, she thought he would die while she was there, but he didn't. But while she was there, she was in this little town up in northern Wisconsin where her family used to go for a little bit of time in the, in the summer. And she was at this little cafe in this little town called Sister Bay, Wisconsin. And she looked up at the bluff at, this, at the area where this little cottage where her family had stayed in, in summers. And she just got absorbed, absorbed, in this, in this grief reaction and the memories and completely lost and carried away. Have you ever had that experience? Completely absorbed. And I'll just add the word identified. Completely absorbed. And it is a beautiful thing to be able to remember things and to be, have our hearts touch. But she was really absorbed in the pain of the loss and the, and the history and all of that. Because she'd lost her mother a few years ago as well. But in one moment though, she turned her attention away from the bluff and back to the room where she was sitting. Now, if you may have been carrying around some thing today, absorbed in a drama about today or something that you went through or, or a trauma that keeps resurfacing in your mind and you may have carried it. Well, when she turned back into the room that she was, uh, she was sitting with her sister, for a moment she just saw very quickly that that whole little thing that she had just gone through was a, a trance. It was a drama. And for a moment, she was just present. She was just simply present. And it was such a profound flash of presence for her that she 
she realized in that instant, and this may be um, a little adding too much extra to the story, but I think it may be the most important part. She realized in that sense of presence that she wasn't her body. She stepped out of the identity of body, stepped out of the identity of daughter, stepped out of the identity of woman. She was simply present. And there was such a, an upsurge of, um, of joy, of lightness. And of course she made, started to make immediate connections to the reminder that her father, who is dying, is not his body. And in fact, we're, none of us are our body. Now, relatively speaking, we, we're, we're all having to deal with a body that's getting old, sick, and dying and all that, and doesn't do always what it, we want it to do. But that's really, in some way, that's a story. That's our situation. Mindfulness, mindful attention, being present, allows us any moment to step out of that identity So try it for a moment. After your last thought of your identity, whatever it is that is your cherished view of yourself, it could be your role that you play every day, could be as a partner, as a parent, as a child, as a business owner, as a uh, whatever it is. Where, Where is your strongest sense of identity? Now, you don't have to give this up. You can still play with it. You can have it. It's useful. But at least for a few moments in the span of your day or of your life, see what it's like to simply drop that view. See who you are when you don't think of yourself as this or that. When you're just present. And what is it that what is it that dawns in that moment? What is it that's felt in that moment of simplicity? I'd be curious. Anybody want to say? Please. Yes. Use those for the bigger picture. Say that. What that means about I use. Ah, we do things in order to build this bigger thing, but not just for themselves. For what they are, yes. To accept moments as they are. But what about right now in the room? 
after your last identity has ceased and before the next one picks, picked up? Everybody's going right into their thoughts. Well, no, I don't. I don't. Weightless. Not expecting anything. Not judging. Not wanting. It's so brief, unfortunately. <laughs> brief, but potent in its brevity. Yes, everything's beautiful. Thank you. Yes. You don't feel as short. Oh. <laughs> Jen is with a friend tonight who's quite a bit taller than her. So, so the, and her her friend had already on her back so that Jen won't feel so short. <laughs> anyway, please, Jim. When sense of bliss and relaxation in his body that reverberates. Yes. And all we did was suspend for a few moments what we tend to live inside, which is a, a kind of uh, a, a cocoon of limitation, which is, our, which is the personality view. We all, we all, I think, from time to time need these identities. They're functional. But we have to, but we can operate from an understanding of there are a lot of moments that we can just be simple, like just be present and feel that, feel that life of being present. One uh, little sutra that probably shared many times called the Avatamsaka Sutta, it's very short and pithy. The sutra goes, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Please. Yeah. I felt like I was looking out through my eyes and observing just felt as though she was looking out of her eyes and viewing things unemotionally. Just not viewing as a personality. Right. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with being a personality, but we, we, it, this kind of a recognition helps us see that being, seeing through the lens of a personality isn't the whole picture. Is that, and it's often, uh, we, we're terrified of dropping all of our identities and they're really quite, um, they imprison us when we are lost in them. Someone else had their hand up. Please. Uh, 
Nothing is lacking, but nothing is full. Not possible to put into words. Oh, that's, it's impossible to put it in words. <laughs> but it's something that we can recognize. And I think the more that we familiarize ourselves with being simply present and what that's like, we, be, we develop, uh, there's a language of consciousness, and we develop a capacity to speak and, and even understand what each other is saying. But I think that's something that grows with direct experience. It's not something that we can think about so much. Um, something that just emerges. So I, I wanted to pass that story on uh, from, from, my, from my wife because it's very easy to be... Because there's such a, to grieve or to revisit a, a traumatic event, it's these kinds of things that, that, it's wonderful that we can do this. But it can become a, a kind of vortex of preoccupation. It can become an identity. And pretty soon we can come to a point in our lives where we're no longer uh, or our, our habit is much more to live in these little dreamscapes of what has gone on before or who we imagine ourselves to be and we start to miss the, the vividness, the beauty, the, the, the bliss, the tingliness of real presence. As one of my teachers uh, said, H.W.L. Punja, he said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by remaining at the source of these thoughts, by recognizing the origin of these thoughts. By, that's just another way of saying, by notice them. Notice them. Notice how they emerge. A thought of your, a thought of my mother is not my mother. Thought of my father is not my father. It's a thought, and that thought has a lot, brings a lot of feeling, and I'm thankful that it brings a lot of feeling when I think about my dad who passed away. But it's a thought, and it's a it's a thought world, and. I want to know that what it, I want to know that thought for what it is. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. That's coming back to this evening and whatever your situation is in your life. Freedom is right in the middle of it. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachments to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. Does this make sense to you? By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. Whenever I read this, I, I usually read another Hafiz poem where he says, What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past 
and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. As a, a famous wise person, jokester, trickster, Tibetan Lama named uh, Patro Rinpoche put it, don't prolong the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. That means whatever comes. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. <laughs> That's Patro Rinpoche. So as I'm often reminded, and I think that night that we met out in the park, in the deer park in Sarnath in India, uh, I spoke about the moment, uh, the the close to the moment of awakening during the watches of the night where the Buddha's mind opened and he saw, and I think I included the the sutra called the All, where he said, in the scene, there's just what's seen. In the heard, there's just what's heard. In the smell, just what's smelled. In the tasted, just what's tasted. In the felt, just what's felt. In the cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. That's all there really ever is. There are just these six experiences arising and changing and passing away over and over. Our life is made up of this flow, this continuous flow of these sense experiences. And it's a miraculous and a beautiful thing, on one hand, that we have this capacity to take these six experiences and embellish them with a story of loss and gain and praise and blame and success and failure and all these things, all the dramas that play as our personal story. It's a miracle when all that's ever really happened is these six experiences. It's quite incredible that we can do that. The problem isn't the fact that we can do that. That's miraculous. It's that we mistake that story, that interpretation, that spin on reality for reality itself, and often miss those six sense experiences. So our spin, how we, what meaning we ascribe to a situation, what belief, what view, and usually whatever meaning we ascribe to a situation or that view, or the, it's usually has has. It's all about the me story. It's all about the the sense of it. With me as the central character in this great drama. It's the story of me. And I, I thought that I would share with you tonight one of the uh, funnier stories from the, from the Hasidic tradition about ascribing meaning to a situation and what's really happening and what our tendency is. And if we, uh, we can discuss after that if we still have time. So one day, the Pope declared that all Jews must leave Rome. The people protested and protested, so the, po so the Pope says, Okay, I'll have a debate with one of your teachers. And if I win, you leave. And if you win, you stay. So the Jews selected a young man named Moshe. 
Moshe Pupik. I was just kidding. Pupik means belly button. Anyway, a young man named Moshe. I always remember that there's a character named Moshe Pupik. But anyway, so the, the Jews selected a young man named Moshe to, uh, to represent them. Moshe said to the Pope, According to my tradition, we must debate without words. So the Pope agreed. They sat together facing each other. The Pope lifted up three fingers. Moisha lifted up one. The Pope swirled the three fingers around his head. Moisha pointed to the ground. The Pope got out some bread and wine. Moisha got out an apple. Then the Pope said, Ah, you win. So the cardinals and everyone crowded around the Pope and said, What happened? Why did he win? Well, the Pope said, When I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity, he held up one finger to remind us that we share one God. When I showed God is all around by swirling my fingers, he points to the ground and says, God is right here now with us. And when I took out the bread and wine, (laughs) the bread and wine to show that Jesus died for our sins, he showed me an apple to remind us of the original sin. He has an answer for everything. So Moisha goes to his people and they all crowd around him and said to him, what did you do? How did we win? He said, well, I don't know. When he held up three fingers to tell us that we had three days to live, to leave, I pointed my finger and said, not one of us will leave. When he twirled his finger over his head to tell us we all must leave immediately, I pointed my fingers to the ground and said, we're all staying right here. And when he got out his bread and wine, I took out my apple for my lunch. (laughs) So this is just a little invitation to be slightly skeptical of the spin that goes through your mind. To know that at least that it's a spin. I'm trying to figure out how that relates to my my, um, oh yeah, that's right. I'm trying to come back to my little battle with my sweet Molly. And it was really about the, the spin I had as dad and what a seven-year-old girl should act like with her dad and this and that. And when I was able to step out of my spin and just take her in for the, 
And of course, maybe my view of her as an exhausted seven-year-old was another spin, but at least it was a more compassionate spin. And it turns out that when I related to her that way, she calmed down. So there must be something to it. So as the great, uh, I think his name, I used for 20 years, I thought his name was Henry Audubon, but... Uh, but I found out more recently that his name is, I think, John J. Audubon. The way he put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. So let's just sit quietly. leave you with one last poem about stepping out of the spin from Derek Walcott called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say sit here eat You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. May all beings rest in natural great peace and ease. May all beings be happy and peaceful, safe and protected, healthy and strong. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And may our practice tonight any of the blessings, the goodness, the merit, benefits of our practice, may they be dedicated today and every day to the welfare and benefit of each other. May all beings be free. be in harmony with things as they are. So just a usual reminder of helping with the uh, breakdown of the room, the putting the, the bags that have the cushions are behind one of the dividers back there. So uh, some help putting away the cushions, the chairs, a reminder that the room costs us $150 per week. Any help with the room rental, practicing dana. One of the things that the Buddha said in his first, uh, as he shared the teachings, uh, 
as he went around the countryside after that first night when he dealt with lay people, he, the first thing he taught was dana or generosity. So we practice that here by room rental dana to support our each other to be able to practice and teacher dana if you feel so inclined to allow teaching to continue and others to be able to receive different teachings. So Dana is one of the first baskets of the Buddha's teaching along with ethics and morality, along with the training of meditation. So if you feel so inclined, the basket is right there. A little extra for the room rental, a little teacher, Dana, thank you in advance. It's not uh, ob- obligatory, but deeply appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.